Welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Max Lawson of Oxfam about their new report, Inequality Kills. There's a link to the report in the description of this episode, so make sure you go and check it out. There's lots of fascinating stats in that report. And we talk about loads of different things relating to inequality and why it's increased so much over the course of the pandemic. So we look at um, economic inequality, income and wealth inequality, but also gender and racial inequality, inequality between countries, which is really significant in terms of affecting the ability of lots of states to repay debts and also um, having a massive impact on poverty all around the world. And we also talk about things like how inequality is affecting our ability to tackle climate breakdown and how it's affecting democracy. So a great episode this week. Thanks as always to our patrons. If you want to listen to the full episode, then please do sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. Also make sure to share your favorite episodes of the show on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at at a world to win pod. So now, without further ado, here is Max Lawson on why inequality has exploded so much over the course of the pandemic. Hello, I am here with Max Lawson of Oxfam to talk about uh, Oxfam's new report on billionaire wealth inequality kills. Um, Hi, Max. How are you doing today? I'm really well, thanks, Grace. Good. Um, So this report is fascinating. It's full of just incredible stats. Can you start by telling us some of the main findings of the report? This is your annual Davos report, I think, isn't it? So what is the top line? What are the main stats? I think, I mean, I've been working on these kind of billionaire facts every year for quite some time. And I think the main headline uh, this year is just the scale of the explosion in billionaire wealth that we've seen during COVID-19. So you've seen the 10 richest men have doubled their fortunes during the pandemic. Absolutely astronomical increase in wealth. When you look at the graph, in fact, it reminded me of the kind of Omicron graphs. You know, it's almost exponential. And I'm a fairly seasoned billionaire watcher and their their money goes up and down. But this is really off the charts. So, yeah, I think that the main message this year is that we've seen this kind of inequality explosion. We've seen billionaire wealth increase incredibly dramatically. We've seen the wealth of millionaires and multimillionaires increase too. And not enough people are talking about it. It's kind of happening out of the headlines. um, And we really want to draw attention to that because it's deeply, deeply concerning. Yeah, I mean, you've got some stats in here, like the wealth of the 10 richest men has doubled while the incomes of 99% of humanity is worse off. A new billionaire has been created every 26 hours since the pandemic began. I mean, if this was happening at any other point, this would be headline grabbing stuff. Why do you think people just aren't paying attention? Well, it's partly because, I mean, it's just a very prosaically, Davos itself hasn't happened since the mm. pandemic began. So that kind of media moment in January when all the billionaires convene in Switzerland has been postponed twice and has only happened in a much more limited form. So we haven't had that kind of moment to shine a light on it. And also, I think obviously people have been distracted. There's been so much else going on. But there is this growing consensus out there now that the vast majority of people have seen their incomes fall, that ordinary people. I mean, this not coming from Oxford, it's coming from the World Bank, it's coming from all the, the national statistical agencies. So we have seen this kind of drop in, in people's income. 
And yet you've seen this absolutely astronomical increase at the top at the same time. So what do you think is driving this massive increase in inequality? Well, I mean, I think there's a number of things. I think it's very, very clear that um, COVID kind of was like an X-ray and revealed all these multiple inequalities in the world and kind of fed off them in so many ways. And there's great numbers in the report about the impact on gender inequality and racial inequality. And the fact, it's the startling fact, that the inequality of the country that you live in is a better correlate for whether you're going to die from COVID-19 than your age, you know. So the the, in, the relationship between inequality and and COVID nineteen itself is profound. But then you've got the kind of financial impact of what governments did or didn't do. So around the world, obviously, saw people losing their jobs or losing income and a dramatic fall in income at the bottom, and a particular impact on on women and people of color uh, in countries all over the world, not just in in the global north. But then at the top, you saw this, um, well, I think you saw two things going on. And it's it's not, you know, I think it needs more research. But I think certainly the impact of kind of forced saving in the first six, nine months was very important. So obviously, those who often spend their money on services and going out and those kinds of things, they have disposable income, they were kind of forced to save it. So you saw this increase in wealth for a large chunk of people near the top. But I think more importantly was the very, very rich, the people who really get most of their wealth from the stock market, from kind of more fluid liquid assets, and which includes, of course, the billionaires. And there, I think it's really interesting. I'd love to get your take on this, but it's really, I think, the the impact primarily of quantitative easing at a scale that um, even dwarfed the financial crisis. So the point we try and make in the paper is that we're not against the, uh, in, you know, the it's it's very similar to the debate we had back 10 years ago. Of course, we think government should have intervened at the time of COVID-19. We think what they did was absolutely vital to rescue the economy. But we have seen this kind of leakage of billions of dollars into assets. And that has driven up the wealth of the super rich, which is why our main ask in the, the report, and not just us, the ask of the IMF and others, is that we see more and greater taxation of wealth in the next few years to try and claw that money back because it's it's not because these billionaires have worked twice as hard in the two, last two years, let's be honest. And they are some of the most disagreeable, awful people on earth as well. So it would be really nice to get the money back from them and spend it <laughs> on something useful instead. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I've been beating the drum on this. A lot of people have been beating the drum on this for a very long time about just the fact that so much of this increase in wealth at the very top is literally being driven by states, and particularly by the US, by the UK, and by kind of all the states within the Eurozone under the mantle of the ECB, because these central banks are just pumping money into financial markets like they have not ever before, as you say, even dwarfed the scale of what we saw in 2008. And, you know, I'll put some links to some articles in the description, but the transmission mechanism for this, for listeners who might not be familiar, is that central banks have been creating new money, using that money to purchase assets. So particularly things like government bonds, government debt, but also things like corporate debt, other forms of debt, buying all that up and replacing it with cash. And then investors have taken that cash and plowed it into other assets, into, you know, stock shares, equities, 
whatever other corporate bonds. Um, so you've had lots and lots of money chasing the same broadly, the same amount of stuff, and that's driven up asset prices. And when asset prices go up, it's the people who own the assets who get richer, and that tends to be the already wealthy. So this is obviously a massive problem, Max. But the other side of the coin is that just because quantitative easing has driven up wealth inequality doesn't mean that quantitative tightening and monetary tightening, so raising interest rates, is going to reduce it. What is your your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree completely. I mean, it's not, it's easy to kind of snap back from one to the other, and particularly with all the kind of scaremongering around inflation. And so I think we need to be very cautious in, in what we're prescribing. But I do think you know, the, the the kind of extraordinary explosion in the assets of those at the top. For me, it makes a very, very strong case for greater taxation of wealth and clawing that money back, either in a one-off solidarity mm. fashion or a kind of long-term set of permanent wealth taxes. And we think um, that that should just, it just makes sense because it's it's not their money, it's our money mm. and, and we need it back. So I think that, that makes a lot more sense to me than, you know, the kind of we're already seeing it because of the, the the rising interest rates, the impact that has on the developing world in particular, and mm. on the you know huge problem with the debt crisis, which I know you were talking to Heidi about recently. You know that, that any just small increase in interest rates in the rich world has huge impacts around the world. So we need to be very very careful about the kind of leap to fiscal tightening as well. Mm. So, what do you think are the political barriers? to implementing the kind of wealth tax that you've been advocating and, and you know what do you think would be let's say the the easiest wealth tax politically and economically to implement i think um, there's huge barriers to taxing the rich in any form and the main barrier to taxing the rich is of course the rich themselves who are <laughs> immensely powerful and influential so and we've all seen you know that with disappointment how they're even very limited but important moves to tax the rich more in the US have kind of run into the sand with the whole of the, the Build Back Better agenda. And um, I think there's really interesting developments in China where they are you know, experimenting with greater taxation on the wealthy. So you can see this kind of move by in political capitalism that are worried about these dramatic increases in wealth. And I suppose, and you know, for, for me and for Oxfam, we're also very interested in what you know developing countries can do around the world. And there, it is quite interesting because a lot of the the very basic wealth taxes that are broadly accepted uh, in the rich world don't exist in most developing countries. And I'm talking about you know the less sexy wealth taxes like property taxation or capital gains or inheritance taxes so there is quite a lot of scope for developing countries to implement a whole range of taxes on on their rich people that would raise revenue that would make a difference but we think beyond that we do need to see the kind of return of net wealth taxation and we do think there's a a growing consensus in that direction and the fact that we almost got there to some extent in the US, we saw the excitement around Elizabeth Warren's proposals, working with Gabrielle Zuckman in particular. You know, we need to keep fighting for these things. But do I think it's going to be easy to see big increases on the taxes of rich people? No. But do I think we need to push very hard in that direction in the next couple of years? I think that's essential. One thing that sprung to mind um, and something that, that Oxfam has done a lot of campaigning on is tax avoidance and tax evasion and the role played by 
certain states and also big financial institutions in facilitating tax avoidance and evasion, particularly when we're thinking about trying to raise wealth taxes in the global south. Because obviously it's often quite easy for that money to escape and find its way into, you know, offshore secrecy jurisdictions. What progress, if any, has been made on tackling tax avoidance and evasion at the international level? Because we've been hearing a lot about it recently. And what more needs to be done? Okay, well, I think that's quite clear. There's been some progress on corporate tax and no progress on individual taxation. And the progress on corporate tax has been incredibly limited. But I, I, I mean... The optimist in me likes to at least believe that it represents the kind of the bottom of the curve, if you like. Uh, you know, the, the agreement by the, the G20 to have a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%, which means that all these tax havens that currently charge, you know, tax rates of 0% or even minus in some circumstances uh, will not be allowed to do that any longer. So you'll be in a situation where you do have a kind of at least a floor. Now, the floor is far, far too low. If you think that corporate tax rates in the heyday of you know American capitalism were around 50%, then it's you know clearly 15% is not nearly enough. But do we think that in the face of incredible headwinds, like globally in terms of agreeing politically on anything, that to have a kind of agreement at the G20 to have a minimum corporate tax rate to really talk, clearly about getting rid of the ability for these corporations to pay virtually nothing is progress and is a tribute to the amazing campaigners i think of uk on cut all those years ago or the tax justice movement an amazing amazing movement that has pushed that onto the agenda long way to go but some progress but i would say on individual taxation we need a similar and parallel movement and i think that's where the wealth tax thing is really interesting because i think polling and we've done polling all over the world on this as Oxfam and with others, you know, the, the the political support for greater taxation of rich people is enormous. But as you can imagine, that those who have all the wealth and the power don't want it to happen. But it's very much linked to, as you say, their ability to hide their money offshore. I don't think it's, I wouldn't want to say it's entirely linked to that. I mean, if you look at the difference between, say, like Morocco, Colombia, they have reasonable wealth taxation. They raise about 1%, 2% of GDP, whereas other countries do nothing at all. So often the kind of, if you like, the secrecy jurisdictions are used as an excuse for doing nothing at all because they'll say, mm. well, it, it's pointless, all our money will disappear. So I think I don't want to portray that there's no scope for manoeuvre on the part of developing country governments. Argentina, for instance, introduced a really exciting solidarity wealth tax to pay uh, for the COVID-19 response. So I think there are things governments can do, but yes, we need to combine it with a, a dramatic push on clamping down on individual tax avoidance. You know, maybe maybe these Russian oligarchs and clamping down on this cash will help, you know? I don't know it's certainly going to put it on the agenda, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about that later, but it is worth talking to now. I mean, talking about now, like Boris Johnson in particular has failed really to place um, severe sanctions on the Russian billionaires whose wealth is stacked away in London. I mean, we know that London is one of the biggest sinks, particularly London property, one of the biggest sinks for the wealth of, of Russian oligarchs. Why do you think we're so reluctant to follow this money when it comes to literally outright corruption and criminality? Well, I, I mean, well, I mean, our, our, our ruling class has been, I think, prostrate and sold to the world for a very long time, hasn't it, in terms of mm. the, the city and, the, and the, the power of the financial sector. And, and I think that is... 
very, very clear with the kind of discussions around Russian money, but it's true for so much, you know, for Africa that I know best, you know, it's equally true for African money. You know, it's, it's, I remember being at a conference on corruption about a decade ago and it was, it's, it's the way corruption is discussed is it's always just uh, inherently racist and the implications it's mm. a brown person in a poor country that's taking a bribe. And this guy from India got up and he said, I'm absolutely disgusted with this. I think that London is the most corrupt place on earth and Switzerland is the second most corrupt place on earth. And it was just kind of hush in the room, but it's just really, I remember because I hadn't really done much work on this at the time, which is such a shock to see it the other way around and to realise that, yes, we are not the only place, but probably the most important place that you would stash your cash if you're rich in almost any country on the planet, which is appalling when you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess kind of related to that, I was going to ask about Oxfam's previous research, which I think, if I remember rightly, you had a report out not long ago, which suggested that so much of the wealth that is accumulated by billionaires is illegitimate. There's that old saying that, you know, behind every massive fortune is a massive crime. And there was an Oxfam report that suggested that around one third of billionaire uh, wealth came from crony connections to to government or corruption and another another third came from inheritance so you can't even make the case that this wealth is is earned um is that still the case now i think that was balzac I th- i'm pretty sure you're yeah, behind every great fortune is a great crime i love that quote um, yeah because you know let's face it they're all a bunch of crooks and and one of the things that really i mean we did do this research and it was actually to be honest quite contentious inside oxfam because you're kind of just making a distinction between the deserving billionaire and the undeserving billionaire, people didn't really like because mm. lots lots of us felt that none of them are deserving. But, you know, and also within that spectrum, you do get the different gradations of what they mean by cronyism. And if you look at the way The Economist does it, for instance, it just happens to be, you know, the white American billionaires who get a clean bill of health and, it, and it's <laughs> the kind of brown billionaires from developing countries that are seen as cronies and corrupt. But even allowing for all those things, you can definitely look at where people get their wealth from. And not every sector in the economy produces billionaires at the same rate. You know, it's quite clear that some sectors have an ability to produce extreme wealth much, much more than others. And, you know, typically oil and gas. And and that's all linked to rent seeking and, and corruption. But even beyond the corruption, it's linked to monopoly and monopoly power. So, yeah, we did. We we did do some analysis that showed about a third of billionaire wealth comes from that and about another third is either you inherited billions or what's more common, famous example would be Donald Trump, you inherited, you know, five, six hundred million and you managed to turn that into a couple of billion, which in today's stock market is really not that hard. So the level of inheritance is absolutely enormous. Um, and that tends to be more true in Europe where the money is older but you know increasingly um, I was just reading this morning something like Milanovic about the kind of transmission of, of wealth in China where you know most billionaires from like 10 years ago as you would expect with Chinese history come from very very poor backgrounds but now you're beginning to see this kind of transmission of wealth through the generations. so it's it's not just a, an old Europe problem but I think the thing that really struck me with that work and why we didn't really 
do more with it is that the 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 third of billionaires that kind of got if you like a clean bill of health still included those who are very much involved in kind of squeezing supply chains crushing mm. workers you know i mean we don't want to give any impression that they're they're in any way good guys but uh, in the kind of very basic sense their their wealth has been gained in a more legitimate fashion in the kind of classic capitalist sense but still still pretty grubby to be honest um now let's get into kind of some of the specifics now because when we're talking about inequality there's lots of different kinds of inequality to measure let's start with racial inequality why has has it gotten so much worse over the course of the pandemic well for the first thing to say is not many countries often for political reasons collect data on race in a really systematic and adequate way. So when we really looked into this, you've only really got data from Brazil, from here in the UK, and from the United States. So, um, and that is just, a, a, a the, in most cases, uh, certainly in the rich world, it's a real choice in, in mainland Europe, particularly in France, that to pretend that race doesn't exist and not, not, not even count it in the first place. So in that case, it's very, very hard to tell. But in the countries that we do know about, and I think Brazil is a really good example, then you're 1.5 times more likely to die of COVID-19 if you have Afro descent. And in and the US, it's or if you're Latinx or from black populations, then it's more like two or three times more likely to die. And I think that's, you know, it could be that it's just those countries and all the other countries, race doesn't play a part, but I, I think that's unlikely. I think it's quite likely that ethnicity plays a huge part in who dies and for all the reasons that we know well in the same way that women are the most impacted economically that the kinds of jobs um, that people put people highest at risk that people have lifestyles that put them at highest risk you know the historic health inequalities you know in the US the health inequalities between you know black women giving birth like far far more likely to die than white women so it's not like COVID-19 invented these things. It's more that it kind of drove a wedge and really kind of magnified them in a way that really was quite dramatic in all the places that we could count. So, mm-hmm. and, and of course, it's re- it, it, all intersectional and all very much linked, particularly race and income when it comes to COVID deaths. Obviously, deaths from COVID-19 in women were... Uh, slightly less than for men but um, then if you also look at the broader even with that if you look at the broader definition of deaths from COVID-19 and we've got some numbers coming out this week um, which are based by on a I mean I hate to hear myself say this but an amazing model done by The Economist mm. which which looks at excess deaths around the world and then mm. looks at it in a careful way and there was an article in Nature that you know reviewed it and they looked at other models and it's all coming up with the same stuff basically that um, four times more people have died of COVID-19 in developing countries than rich countries. And it's it's still very much seen as a disease that hurt rich countries more. And that itself is a profound form of inequality, you know, because it's... And these are excess deaths, remember. So it's not just deaths from COVID-19. And here the gender aspect comes in too. Mm. In Africa, it's deaths from malaria. It's deaths from all the other diseases that have got worse because of lockdowns because of huge uh, economic problems before because of huge diversion of health resources so yeah it's 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 pretty grim when you look at uh, those numbers and they're still going on as well the idea that omicron is you know the the pandemic is over three million people uh, according to this model have died 
since Omicron was discovered. So we're still talking about huge numbers of people dying from COVID-19 and in a very, very unequal fashion. Mm. Let's talk then about inequality between countries, um, because there's this received wisdom that this has kind of been going down as a result of globalisation, that um, while inequality within countries might have been getting worse, in some cases, inequality between countries in general is lessening. How has the pandemic changed that? And what has been the kind of driving factors making things worse in the global south? Yeah, I mean, I should say first, and I can hear Jason Hickel in my ear, uh, you know, he there are people who dispute this grand narrative, but it is absolutely uh, the, the grand narrative that, yes, it's true, inequality could be increasing and is increasing within countries between rich and poor people in India or in the UK. But at the same time, the kind of glorious neoliberal project is meaning that for once, the poor world is catching up with the rich world. And and I think it is broadly the case that you have seen this like convergence. And that's driven massively by China, as you can imagine. But that convergence was already beginning to slow before COVID-19 hit. But you still saw a reduction in what they call global inequality, which is basically the, the gap between the rich world and the poor world. And um, COVID-19 has, I mean, the, the World Bank did a paper on this just a few weeks ago. And so I think it's fairly received wisdom now that COVID-19 has thrown that into reverse. So for the first time in 30 years, you're seeing this divergence between the rich world and the poor world. And you don't need to look very far for the reasons for that, because it's all linked to the obscene level of vaccine inequality around the world. So because rich countries have hoarded vaccines, because they've prevented the sharing of intellectual property and the ability of developing countries to produce their own, you've had this kind of twin track economic recovery. And that has driven much faster growth and uh, kind of pulling away from poor nations by rich nations. So that's... um, that's what's driving it. And that is, uh, uh, as you say, I mean, that hasn't happened for a very long time. And then I think at the same time, all the evidence that we've seen, at least, actually, that's not quite true. I think a significant amount of the evidence we've seen suggests that there will be increases in within country inequality in many, many places. There may be some exceptions, and they, even those are quite interesting. We can talk about them in a minute. But I think in most countries, you will see this increase at national level, between those at the top and those at the bottom. And at the same time, you're seeing this growing uh, gap between the developing world left behind and the rich world pulling ahead. Um, So you mentioned there, there have been kind of different performances on inequality between countries. Which countries have experienced the most dramatic rise in, in inequality, economic inequality? And where has it been the least bad? And what do you think explains these divergent outcomes? I think the first thing to say is it's it's because it's all survey data and lots of the surveys were put on hold. And, you know, even in the rich world, you know, a lot of this is extrapolation, but we are starting to see some stuff come through. And uh, it's a really interesting thing. And, and it, it, it's challenging in some ways. So as we all know, in rich countries, and not just in Europe, but also in the US, you saw this. And unlike the financial crisis, we didn't just pump money into financial markets. We handed out money to ordinary people. Um, and often, uh, particularly in the case of the US, the handouts to ordinary people were way, way more generous than they would normally get. And that has had an impact in the United States and in parts of Europe of 
reducing income inequality. So you will see the Gini coefficient for the US reduce in the, in the next kind of uh, round of data because of those investments. Now, of course, we know that in most countries, those were temporary and uh, that will kind of flip back again. But I think it just shows how, I mean, we, we were all saying it was a wonderful thing and it just shows what governments can do when they want to do it. So, I mean, that was an argument that stands for itself anyway. And the power of universal social protection and all of those profoundly important things. But in addition, we can also say that if you really want to reduce your Gini coefficient pretty quickly, then there's a, it's a pretty simple way to do that. Just give poor people significantly more money. I don't think um, structurally that's the answer in the long run because we need to, as we've discussed, squeeze the rich for as much of their money as we can because not least do we need a sustainable financing model. We need to reduce their power and influence. But I think you are going to see this interesting dynamic where in Europe income inequality will fall at least temporarily, but wealth inequality will increase dramatically, both as a result of the financial interventions that were made in the first part of the pandemic, which is interesting. Mm. Now, none of this is something that's been going on overnight. Your report shows that since 1995, the top 1% has captured 20 times more of global wealth than the bottom 50%. What do you think are some of the roots of this explosion in inequality over the last kind of 20, 30 years? Well, I mean, I've always been of the view that it was, you know, the fault of neoliberalism. And then I was listening to a podcast the other day that said, you know, maybe neoliberalism went too fixated on it and maybe it's just capitalism. So... (laughs) So then I just I'd love to love to hear your view on that one. But I think if you if you look at them if you look at it in, as Piketty is so good at in the kind of grand historical perspective, and then it is true that you've had this definite impact during the neoliberal period of driving up inequality, and there is a real clear link between the kind of policy of neoliberalism, and then if you like, I was listening to someone the other day talking about how, how neoliberalism maybe is such a actually a really pliable project and if you look at uh, the quantitative easing and the absolutely you know unthinkable involvement of the state in financial markets in the last 10 years which some people certainly I was included was thinking that might be the beginning of the end for neoliberalism back in 2009-2010 maybe it's just a kind of mutated form because if if it's seen as a class project then the people at the top have done better in the last 10 years than they did in the first 30 years of neoliberalism. You know, so it's kind of, it's still working very well for them. But I think in a kind of grander historical perspective, yeah, you, you, you are approaching levels of inequality and, and ownership of assets by the, the, the richest people that we haven't seen. I mean, in India, there's a great paper by Piketty that compares inequality in India now to inequality under colonialism and under the Raj and how that's returning. Um, You see this very, very sharp increase in inequality in China just in the last 20 years. It has levelled off, if you believe the statistics, in the last five or six years. And then a huge increase in wealth inequality, particularly in the United States. I have to say it's not as bad in Europe as it is in America, but it is still significantly worse in Europe than it used to be. And you can see it all as a kind of unravelling, if you like, of the post-war consensus. Uh, But you're definitely 
are we approaching levels? I mean, if you look at the the concentration of wealth in the top one percent, you know, in in the Victorian era, uh, no, we haven't got there yet. But are we well on the way? We definitely, definitely are. With all the implications that has for wealth and power and the corruption of politics, and mm. uh, you know, as as my um, my former boss Winnie always used to say, you know, it doesn't really matter if someone can buy a bigger car or a bigger yacht, but if they can buy a judge. You know, if they can buy a newspaper, if they can buy an election, then that really, and that's the other famous quote, isn't it? That, you know, uh, Louis Brandy said, you can have, you can have democracy or you can have extreme wealth in the hands of a few, but you can't have both. And I think that's, Mm. that for me is the deeply, deeply worrying impact of this trend in very, very, very powerful and rich people getting richer and more powerful all the time. That brings us nicely onto my next question, which is that why is this inequality bad for everyone rather than just a problem to be dealt with by the poor? There's two answers to that question. I think uh, the first one, and I, 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 you know, I've just recently moved back from living in, in Kenya for three years, back to to northeast London, where I've always lived, and it's really made me reflect on the different societies and and the impact of inequality and equality in its most profound sense so I would give an example for instance that my my children when we lived in Kenya they went to a private school it was a very diverse private school lots of Kenyans there but they were all incredibly rich and they lived in this kind of bubble of the one percent now here we're back in London and they're a normal primary school with a huge range of people across classes and ethnicities and that's their lived experience. You know, that's their best mates at school. And that's the profound impact of equality in a public education system. And equally, you know, if they get sick in Kenya, if I got sick, we had health insurance, we went to a private hospital. For the majority of Kenyans, uh, they had virtually nothing. You know, there's huge, huge inequalities. But the, the reason I mention it is that the way in which equality brings people together, the fact that we use the same doctors, we walk our dogs in the same park, our kids go to the same school. It all contributes to a much more profound quality of life. Now, of course, in Britain, those inequalities have grown and it's got much, much worse. And we, you know, poor people are forced out of the city. So I'm not for a second saying that everything is good in Britain at all. I'm just making the point that when you have a Gini coefficient around 0.3, 0.35, like you do in most of Europe, then that has lots of implications for people's lives and people's health and people's happiness. And that's what Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson have shown so well, that there mm. are these amazing positive net impacts, not just for poor people, but for rich people too. Now, I mean, I've also lived uh, for quite a period of my life in South Africa, which is one of the most unequal countries on earth. And then you don't need to look far to see that inequality is pretty awful if you're rich as well because you just live in fear all the time and you live behind an enormous security fence and you just we have a danish billionaire that we work with um and he told a wonderful story of visiting a really rich person in brazil he's trying to get rich people to back wealth taxes he supports wealth taxes and he said he went to visit this brazilian billionaire in in their apartment and it was amazing penthouse apartment but he said i needed to go through three layers of security to get it to get into their house and they had kind of bars on the windows Uh, and he said in Denmark he said all I have outside my house is flowers you know and I thought that was just Mm. a beautiful way of putting it that you know 
there is something that equality buys for you that your money can never buy for you. So mm. I think that's really important. And I think then the other impact of inequality, which is more more the kind of politics and the corruption of our democracies, is the way that wealth and power and politics come together. And I think the example of the the oligarchs of London grad is 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 a, a great one, but I, only sadly just one example of a, a very clear way in which money and power come together in some countries much more than others. And a lot of it's to do with obviously campaign financing. And, you know, if you look at the relationship between money and politics in India or in the US, then it's much more obvious that rich people, um, um, Branko Milanovic talks about the kind of the incidence of spending on political um, parties, you know, giving money to political candidates and that it, it's, the, it's even more um, concentrated than expenditure on private jets. You know, the, the people that spend money on politics and politicians are rich people. And these people don't just spend this money expecting nothing in return. You know, <laughs> they, they spend this money expecting to get lower taxes, to, to get more lenient labour laws. And, and that's just as true in India um, as it is in the US. But I think increasingly it's it's true here in the UK as well, you know, the, um, the level of corruption. I mean, it's so hard to tell because no one measures these things, but it does feel to me that um, it's even worse than it was in the past, isn't it? And people can just buy mm-hmm. buy politics in a way perhaps they couldn't 20 or 30 years ago. Another factor is just the massive, and you, you guys point this out in the report, the massive difference in emissions between the wealthy and the less well-off. How is inequality going to affect our ability to tackle climate breakdown? Well, this is a really interesting, you know, we're not the only ones looking at this. Um, uh, Luca Chancel, who works with Thomas Piketty, has also done great work on this, but we have been really pushing the envelope on looking at the emissions of the super rich um, and want to do more on that and get to the point where we're we're making this point about inequality and climate ahead of each cop because you know ultimately the 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 power of of uh, an inequality frame and inequality analysis is it kind of makes you think in in terms of class instead of nation states or other ways of carving up the political pie and understanding that you know the, the fossil fuel economy is very much a kind of project that's delivering for those at the very very top and there is a huge gap and uh, there's just three ways that we want to look at that, that super rich people uh, impact on the climate debate the first one is the most obvious that you know they emit Im- immensely more carbon than your average person and uh, in some cases eight thousand times more carbon so a lot of this is tied to yachts by the way so uh, you know having a mm. yacht is that's pretty carbon intensive but even someone like Bill Gates, he has 23 houses, apparently. You know, I just, the thing that really, I mean, I, I, maybe it's I've been doing this for too long, but I, I really find billionaires more and more uh, difficult to, to to not get really angry about. And the ones that really make me cross are the ones that, are, and the American ones are particularly good at this, kind of come across like an ordinary person. You know, they, they want to make you feel like you know them. You know, these people live a completely different life to what we could ever possibly understand. And that has huge emissions. So I think that's the obvious first way. The second way um, is to look at their investments, you know. So 
massively invested in fossil fuels, huge owners of, of stock market assets that we talked about before. So they are uh, you know, in, involved and in making lots and lots of investments in fossil fuels. And then linked to that is the third one, which is the relationship between their kind of capture of politics and climate policies that are entirely inadequate to to prevent climate breakdown. So we think there is, it's really important for, I think, everyone in the rich world to understand that we need to emit less carbon, but also, you know, and it's been a project of Oxfam for and many others for, for a long time, for people to push them more into thinking about the systemic reasons that we have climate breakdown instead mm. of people feeling guilty for switching on the light or getting on a plane. And I think this really helps because it makes you think, actually, this this is just yet another way in which the world is being broken by the richest people for their benefit. I don't know if you saw that story about Bezos building like the world's biggest super yacht in Rotterdam and the government agreeing to dismantle a historic bridge that was blown up by the Nazis and reconstructed after World War Two, just to make sure his bridge, could, oh. his boat could get through. Honestly, I mean, it's really difficult to decide who's like the worst pantomime yeah. villain. And and I did um I did a blog just before Christmas. I was looking, trying to work out what was the most iconic inequality moments in history. Um, mm. And I mean, obviously, the most famous is probably Marie Antoinette. When told the peasants were hungry, she said, let them eat cake. You know, it's probably like the, the, the quintessential moment. But I think last year when you saw Jeff Bezos in the teeth of a global pandemic that's killed nearly 20 million people and forced hundreds of millions into destitution, and he, he launches his rocket into space, and you don't need to be a Freudian to see that the shape of the rocket is quite relevant as well. <laughs> and he returns, he's got a cowboy hat on, I mean, the way I put it in my blog is if you went to Netflix and you said, I want to make a documentary and you started telling them this story, you'd get laughed out of the room because it's it's so farcical. And then the best thing was then he gives a press conference when he arrives back on Earth where he thanks the employees of Amazon, many of which have to urinate in bottles because they don't get toilet breaks. He thanks them for funding his trip mm. to space. You know, like he doesn't get much more dramatic than that. So I think, yeah, Jeff Bosnitz was rocket and the bridge is... The guy's such a such a bad guy. But then you look at Elon Musk, who's now the richest man on earth, has gone mm. from, you know, only having a few billion to having nearly three hundred billion dollars. And I know you've said this before, but it's really hard to get people to get your head around just how much money that is, you know. And I can't remember what the, the fact is, isn't it? But counting to a billion takes you yeah. years and years, doesn't it? It's um counting the numbers to a million takes you twelve days, counting the numbers to a billion takes you thirty two years. Yeah, so it's just the money. Just it's just, it, it, but it is. It, honestly, when you when you look at the war in uh, in Russia, what's going on now? You can't. It, it, it does make you think. Like you know, I mean, it's just a bunch of blokes who just really just serious inadequacies, and and you see that with the billionaires as well. It's just yeah. they don't just. It, uh, what, they don't need this extra money. It's just a competition for them. You know, they just want to have more money than the next guy and they want to fire their rockets into space. And it just, yeah, awful, awful. And and there's just absolutely no reason to to have them. You know, I think that the, the strong, strong undertone has always been like, you know, uh, we need these people because they drive so much innovation. It's, it makes our economy so vibrant and dynamic. But... It's just simply not the case. You know, we could have a much, much uh, fairer economy that would be 
even more innovative, I'm sure, and just consign these guys to the history books. We really don't need them. Max Lawson, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World Twin. It was great to have you on the show. And I will make sure to put a link to the report in the description so listeners can go and have a read of that because it is well worth a read. Thank you again. Thank you, Grace. It was a real pleasure. I love your podcast and (laughs) a real real treat to be on it. So uh, thanks for listening. 